They told me I use my mouth good, so I started a podcast. Welcome to Iconosass. Wow. This episode, you guys, is going to be a doozy. I've been working a long time on it because this chapter of Jordan B. Peterson's book, The 12 Rules to Life, has a lot in it. There's a lot of layers to get through in it. So this is going to be a bit of a long episode. And uh, as promised, I do have the Queer Eye equivalent. So you'll just have to wait until the very end for that reveal. But uh, I think you're really, that's going to also be a real treat for you guys. So all right, this is when we really get into the whole order and chaos stuff that he tries to use to justify like a lot of other things and i'm not sure it's quite all connected um but basically here's the rule it's rule number two treat yourself like someone you were responsible for helping okay like i already like this rule i'm already like a big fan of this rule and i'm gonna be agreeing with him a lot in this kind of analysis because i don't think he's completely wrong about a lot of the self-care stuff that he brings up but (sighs) There's a lot of bullshit to sort through. So let's dive right into it. So he starts going off on the order and chaos, false dichotomy kind of thing. Um, You know, before he really starts, before he really starts getting into um, some of like the hierarchical stuff, he gives an example for what he's talking about in the form of betrayal. So one of the first topics he covers in this chapter is he speaks about betrayal and he says this is an example of chaos when your friend betrays you in some kind of way so he's talking about your friend stabs you in the back in some kind of way and this is seen as like a chaotic development in what was once an orderly relationship well, right off the bat, that's not really even accurate. It doesn't even really back up his point because you were already living in chaos before. 
so it's even in the specific example he's using he's kind of wrong you were you're already in chaos in this situation you just didn't realize it you were just made aware of the chaos you were already in so small nitpicky thing but you know annoying i mean come on i'm sure there are other better examples that could be used so this is where he he's about to get into um god i guess this is like a weird form of like gender anthropomorphizing over this idea of order and chaos so let's see what his definition of order is this is a quote directly from the book i'm going to be heavily quoting his exact words in this one i know the last episode was like a lot more kind of you know opinion and like tangents on stuff this episode is going to be a little different in that we're going to get lots of chunks of the book uh itself so this is a quote directly from the book order the known appears symbolically associated with masculinity um again like according to who we'll get into that later he goes, this is perhaps because the primary hierarchical structure of human society is masculine, as it is among most animals, including the chimpanzees, who are our closest genetic and arguably behavioral match. It is because men are, and throughout history, have been the builders of towns and cities, the engineers, stonemasons, bricklayers, and lumberjacks, the operators of heavy machinery. Order is God the Father, the Eternal Judge, Ledger Keeper, and Dispenser of Rewards and Punishments. Order is the peacetime army of policemen and soldiers. That is on page 40 of the 12 Rules for Life. Oh man, gosh, there's like so much wrong with this. Um, first of all, you kind of have to go back to where do these symbolic things come from? Well, they were made up we covered this in the last episode, by a psychotherapist named Carl Jung. So where did he make it up from? Uh, his imagination. Um, so he. I want to focus on the last part of this because I really take issue with the terms peacetime army of policemen. Um, I mean, we're just going to bust out some facts over feelings here uh policemen are incredibly violent in any kind of context uh they tend to create a lot of violence um i don't know what the history of canadian policing is but the history of u.s policing is uh not great and it's tied to a lot of racist bullshit um and then he brings up soldiers um again Soldiers, not a great example for what I consider creating order. To, to me, the concept of order, and maybe this is just my woman brain talking, um, the concept of order is like peaceful and lack of conflict instead of like men with guns enforcing a sort of social dominance thing through. What, so, so what are okay how do men create order why are men associated with order well okay bringing order to chaos could be uh like imperialism would fit into this going into other countries to fix them with uh western culture and western civilization uh so, like my whole rebuttal to the idea of like order being masculine is that men create the wars men create the chaos 
where weapons are needed, where violence is needed to stop more violence. Like men are statistically more aggressive, more violent in every single way. They tend to be the ones, again, uh, giving the orders for war and participating in carrying out the wars. The idea of like order being associated with masculinity as a form of preserving a hierarchical structure is incredibly violent. You cannot have nonviolence in that. So it's just, again, like the whole premise of this, why, why you would even gender order in chaos is weird and obviously ideological in the first place. And by the way, I'm really tired of people saying Jordan B. Peterson is not ideological because he very clearly is. And I'm going to get into that and share an article about why he is actually a conservative and not a classical liberal in a little bit. But I really want to dive into the order and chaos thing because this is the foundation of this text. And there's no, again, no reason to be gendering order and chaos. But if you did want to gender it, say you did, say, you know, that was something that, I don't know, was required for you. It doesn't even make sense to gender it in the way that he's trying to. Um, again, like, I don't know how order is associated with masculine when it is typically masculine people who create the majority of violence in society. Let's see what his definition of chaos is. This is from page 41. Chaos, the unknown, is symbolically associated with the feminine. This is partly because all things we have come to know were born originally of the unknown, just as all beings we encounter were born of mothers. Chaos is mater, origin, source, mother, materia, the substance from which all things are made. Okay, um, I don't know, I don't see, I don't see how creation and birth is associated with chaos. That sounds like it's the organizing of cells into a sentient being, so that almost sounds like order, but okay, let's read ahead. Chaos, the eternal feminine, is also the crushing force of sexual selection. Women are choosy matters, unlike female chimps, their closest animal counterparts. Most men do not meet fem female human standards. It is for this reason that women on dating sites rate 85% of men as below average in attractiveness. Okay, I don't actually disagree with most of this assessment here. Again, I, I still don't know how, like, femininity is chaos or feminine is a chaos like you know having control of sexual selection of mates that also sounds like a way of organizing society based on certain uh biological reasons um and i do agree with him most men do not meet female human standards uh there's the concept of like the redundant male and all of this, like, and, you know, he brings up the idea of dating sites. He's totally right about this. This isn't bullshit at all. This is absolutely right. I totally agree with him on this topic. Um, <laughs> but I don't see it as necessarily a bad thing. I don't see it as a chaotic function of society at all. If anything, women have to have, have to maintain those rights and have that type of control over sexual reproduction for the betterment of the species. And I'll get into that in a little bit, too. Uh, so <laughs> um, this is kind of like 
I feel like this specific part, too, kind of ties into some of the controversy he's had around enforced monogamy. Like, oh, we you need, like, a certain amount of enforced monogamy to have peace because there are so many excess unfit males for society that if they don't get their needs met, that's a cause of the kind of violence. Um, but he even gets that wrong because... Again, the whole, like, most men not meaning female human standards is not really an argument for enforced monogamy as much as it is, like, maybe even, and this is, <laughs> I say this in jest, I'm a little bit serious, but what about, like, compulsory homosexuality? Um, if most men are not meeting female human standards, why do females have to even include men in their... Uh, assessment of, for example, if they want to have children or something like that. The idea that, like, it is, auto it should be automatic that men or that women choose men as mates if they want to have children. Um, I lost my train of thought there, but it, it, it just makes sense that that would be the case. And that's actually not a bad thing. And women, can choose other people besides men. I mean, he even says it like most men are not meeting female human standards. So he kind of, he's very mixed up in his thinking on this stuff. I like, I think he ends up advocating for things. <laughs> he ends up using data that supports the opposite of the conclusions he's trying to draw. And that's what a lot of this chapter is. Again, the premise of the chapter is very much self-care oriented and not a bad thing at all, but he really goes off the rails with it. And he starts by I, trying to put this gender binary on these very abstract, vague principles. So, and then, I, okay, and I have one more quote on this, because this one... Gosh, his misogyny really seeps through here. I've had a lot of friends say, like, I can't really see the misogyny in the stuff that he's making. And it is all, it all stems from his attachment of the feminine to chaos. And here's a quote about that. It is woman as nature who looks at half of all men and says, no, for the men, that's a direct encounter with chaos. <laughs> Yes, being turned down is as chaotic as it is. That's a big chaotic thing for men. Good God. Okay, continue. And it occurs with devastating force every time they are turned down for a date. Human female choosiness is also why we are very different from the common ancestor we shared with our chimpanzee cousins. Oh, wait a second. I'm sorry. I fail to see how this is a bad thing, by the way. Let's continue. While the latter are very much the same, F women's proclivity to say no more than any other force has shaped our evolution into the creative, industrious, upright, large-brained, competitive, aggressive, domineering creatures that we are. Um, hmm. This is starting to sound a lot like order to me. I don't know about you guys, but... Uh, <laughs> and then I love this quote. It is nature's woman who says... Well, bucko, you're good enough for a friend, but in my experience of you so far has not indicated the suitability of your genetic material for continued propagation. Um. <laughs> Again, I'm failing to see how this is chaotic, and I'm failing to see how men being rejected is even an example of chaos. You know what's a better example of chaos? 
men men attacking women, women fearing being violently attacked by men all of the time, even when we're just walking down the street, all of the mental calculations that we have to do to just survive in society and just um, <laughs> not get harassed and not receive threats of violence and protect ourselves. Uh, I've written a whole poem about this caught you know called harass math and like I've, I've talked about this topic before like what is chaos like what, chaos is violence in the world chaos for me looks very different than what chaos is to men apparently again i i just can it's very difficult for me to take these claims seriously that like women rejecting unsuitable partners is chaotic and a bad thing. If anything, that sounds like a very natural order. That sounds like the way it has to be for the species to progress, which he just said. He just said women's choosiness has shaped our evolution in very positive ways. So, like, off the bat, he's so contradictory in his thinking about these broader concepts. Ah, <sighs> exhausting. Not really. I'm fine. This is great. Um, <laughs> I just I I have a lot of questions in this episode, too. I'm just going to be kind of like leaving open ended questions because I really do want to understand where he's coming from. I'm reading through his book and I'm really trying to understand how he doesn't see these kinds of connections. I don't think he's necessarily the most unintelligent dude ever. Um, like, I'm just wondering how violent male reaction to rejection is not considered the chaotic force in these interactions. How is the rejection, how is the polite rejection of a relationship in any way chaotic? <sighs> okay. So to kind of skip ahead, he starts going into banning things and kind of regulating behavior, right? And... He's getting into these concepts again, like he does these things where he winds away, he does a bunch of tangents off the point of the chapter um, to really inject in his own ideology. And I think it's important to kind of go on these tangents with him and kind of show what he's doing, because I really think a lot of people gloss over this, like they'll read the chapter title and then selectively remember the points he made supporting it. But then like the other stuff that he just injects and in fades into the background. And it's really important that you know what he's saying, because that's still information that's being intaken on a more subtle level. And that's really where Jordan Peterson is. I don't want to use the word dangerous because I don't want to give him that much credit, but that's where he puts a lot of really destructive ideas for all people of all genders. Um, and I would argue, I mean, specifically men, I think like a lot of his advice is counterproductive to men's thriving specifically, despite it seeming like it can be something helpful to them specifically. But, uh, so he goes on this topic about banning things and the way, like the ways in which if you try to ban too many things, if you try to force something into an order, you can cause more chaos. So here's a quote. Um, 
see. There's simply no way to wall off some isolated portion of the greater surrounding reality and make everything permanently predictable and safe within it. Some of what has been, no matter how carefully excluded, will always sneak back in. A serpent, metaphorically speaking, will inevitably appear. So he admits that you cannot contain chaos with order. That there are limits to the order. And again, kind of going back to his last chapter, he believes that the dominance hierarchies that exist, for example, in patriarchy and the state, are natural outcomes, are natural ways to order society and clamp down on the chaos. He actually wants more of that because he believes the world is becoming too chaotic. And yet right here, he says that he almost admits that you can't really quite have an antidote to chaos. Again, this is like, he does this quite a bit. He really wants to have things both ways, and like maybe he's trying to bring nuance into the situation, but a lot of times it comes off as very contradictory. He goes on to say, and even if it were possible to permanently banish everything threatening, everything dangerous, and therefore, in parentheses, and therefore everything challenging and interesting, right? Um, that would mean only that another danger would emerge, that of permanent human infantilism and absolute uselessness. Um, what he's alluding to here is a paternalistic state, a, a state that's trying to, you know, control everything through laws and like banish everything threatening. And again, what's threatening to him is different than what's threatening to me. <laughs> We kind of live in different worlds. But my note on this part is no one's really calling for this. I mean, there are some authoritarians calling for this, but this is not <laughs> not really like on the left side of the spectrum. Like there are tons of right wing authoritarians wanting to banish anything that even mentions anything sexual or any kind of nudity or anything that's like a non harmful kind of social or personal preference. I mean, the people who have been forcing, who have been banning things throughout most of history and who've been actually censoring things stem from religious authorities, government authorities, literally the patriarchal society that's resulted from the dominance hierarchy that he says is a good thing. So, Again, like, there are really not a lot of people calling for the type of society that he's so afraid of. Because when he's talking about banishing everything threatening, he means in the, in the vein of like, oh, well, I want to be able to say the N-word without consequences. Or I want to be able to use the T-slur without consequences. Like, his... This goes back to some of his views on free speech and stuff like that. Like, I'm a free speech absolutist, but there are a lot of people who take that line, and it's really just because they only care about the free speech of a certain amount of people. So he wants to be able to have his free speech and spout whatever kind of lies and made-up psychoanalytical bullshit, but he doesn't want other people to demand their rights. Like, he doesn't necessarily want free speech across the board. So and, and no one's calling for the banning of dangerous ideas or, or the banning of anything like that. There's just more criticism of certain old ideas than there was before. There's more platforms for criticism now. So 
in a way, like, f- there's more free speech happening than ever before. Again, like, we're not living in the Dark Ages. We're not nearing the Dark Ages of the authoritarian left really coming down and stifling dissent. Like, are they wrong? Are they, do they uh, sometimes go too far in tone policing their own people and stuff like that? Yeah, sure. But, like, this is not really as much of a threat as the free speech attacks that are happening right now by the government, you know, act that are actually affecting people. Um, you know, it's, it's dangerous to talk about things like sex work. You have things like FOSTA and SESTA that are, people are being arrested. People are being specifically targeted with this legislation. Like this is a real thing that's happening. That is dangerous to people, you know? Um, so again, his idea that like, oh, like, I'm not going to be allowed to say what I want to say. Like, he has a giant platform. It's just not based in reality. So I'm going to dive back into more gender stuff now because he, again, he's straying away from the topic, which is very straightforward. I I know you're kind of wondering, when is he going to get to the self-care stuff? It's coming, but you have to wade through a bunch of bullshit gender stuff to even get to his good points. So he starts harping on about, like, Adam and Eve, and Eve and the connection to modern women. And you may be wondering, why is he bringing up the Bible? Well, he's been a biblical scholar, and this is his way of inserting the dominant cultural belief system into what is otherwise fairly benign, common self-help, self-esteem stuff. Um, and I'm going to get into better resources for that, too. <sighs> so, let's see. So I think most of the listeners here are familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. Pretty common story. Most people have heard of it. Um, He asks the question in this section of why was it Eve, you know, that was chosen in the circumstance? You know, why not Adam? And he kind of, you know, postulates on it. And uh, he goes, you know, perhaps primordial Eve had more reason to attend to the serpents than Adam. Maybe they were more likely to prey on her tree-dwelling infants. And he says, perhaps it is for this reason that the descendants of Eve are more protective, self-conscious, fearful, and nervous to this day, even, and especially, in the most egalitarian of modern human societies. Wow. Really? Wait a second. Women are more fearful and protective of themselves because of being tricked by a, oh, I'm sorry, this is all metaphor, a metaphorical serpent and a metaphorical story that was made up a couple thousand years ago. Instead of, like, being self-conscious and protective because they fear literal violence that comes from violent men around them. Or violent people. Like, he's, again, like, the, the mixing of metaphor and, and literal is so frustrating because he sneaks it in so much. Like, he's talking about Adam and Eve, he's postulating about this metaphorical concept, and then he goes 
he injects this little sentence. Again, it's just like one sentence. He has to dig at egalitarianism. He has to make a dig at women and assume that they're all more protective and self-conscious and fearful and nervous and stuff like that. Um, well, okay, regardless of whether or not they are, um, I mean, again, going back to statistics, in some places, there's a good reason to be that way. Why is that? Because you're going to face violence. You're going to face chaos in your life. You can't have it both ways. Like, you can't, he, he keeps trying to do this, and you have to pick it like, okay, is this going to be metaphorical or is it literal? And quit trying to weasel out of the implications that you're making with these statements. The implication of what he's saying here is that egalitarianism is bad and that women have this uh, not even biological reason for being this way they possibly are. Again, if you're just accepting that women are more anxious and whatever, like if you just accept that premise on its face, you have to ask why that is. He doesn't even really go back to biology. He goes back to the Bible and then, try, but that's a metaphor. So this guy's truly exhausting. Um, <laughs> so he continues to bring up the Adam and Eve thing. And he's talking about Adam eating the fruit. And, you know, of course, it was the evil woman who convinced him to do that. And this is what he has to say about Adam's role in his own self-responsibility. Women have been making men self-conscious since the beginning of time. They do this primarily by rejecting them, but they also do it by shaming them if men do not take responsibility. So, again, a, you know, a very interesting point that he's wedged in between this discussion about metaphorical religion and saying that, you know, Eve shares the fruit with Adam and Adam immediately becomes self-conscious, but then he shifts it and says women have been making men self-conscious since the beginning of time by say by like saying that they literally have that like Eve literally did this to Adam despite it being his responsibility for eating the apple. And again, this is not a literal thing that happened in history. <laughs> That I have to, like, make this connection is very, I don't know, it's very bizarre. I have to make it because despite, um, you know, what I personally believe in religion, the culture is culturally Christian. So these themes are going to continuously come up. That's why he's been so successful, because even a lot of the people around him want a kind of secular Protestantism of some kind. Like, they want all of the lessons and cultural baggage of judeo-christian belief systems without any of the belief in divine gods and when i'm saying his contemporaries i'm meaning more people like sam harris and uh you know less religious parts uh, i'm not saying he specifically believes that in fact in this chapter he believes the exact opposite so we're going to get into uh again how his religious beliefs kind of shape his ideological beliefs um, and how his book is very much ideological. Um, again, that was a very, that was an unnecessary dig at women. I just want to highlight that quote I just said because it, it, these things come out of nowhere and they don't seem to connect with the rest of the text. And that's how you know it's 
weirdly ideolo- ideological. Um, and so, yeah, I have, like, I do have a lot of these, you know, quotes here for my friends who are curious and, like, really want to know, like, I really, this isn't something I'm imagining, this is something that I think he's, you know, very, you know, he's really driving home. So, oh, God, yeah, this is going to be a long episode because it's so important. This is, like, really where the misogyny starts coming out. Uh, and in and in some of these quotes that I'm going through, uh, oh, here's another one. This is this is a really interesting one. He goes, "How pathetic and how accurate! The first woman made the first man self-conscious and resentful. Oh, she made him do that. She made him do that. Okay. Then the first man blamed the woman, and then the first man blamed God. This is exactly how every spurned male feels to this day." First, he feels small in front of the potential object of his love after she denigrates his reproductive suitability. Then he curses God for making her so bitchy, himself so useless, if he has any sense, and being itself so deeply flawed. Then he turns to thoughts of revenge. How thoroughly contemptible and how utterly understandable. So it's understandable that men are angry. It's understandable that they're resentful and self-conscious. It's understandable because women and God and uh, having a small penis or something, uh, his, re- his thoughts of revenge are okay. It's, it's okay for him to react to her bitchiness. Again, this is, <laughs> I don't think this is like such a choice quote here. I, lo- I love that, like, you know, this is very, uh, well-respected supposed uh philosopher uses the term bitchy um so casually um (laughs) again what are this guy's daddy issues jeez he's speaking for men here by the way if if i was a man i would be offended by this whole subject i would be offended by this whole section because uh again he just he bashed women but he's also bashing men here and i don't think people realize this he's speaking for you he's telling men that they feel spurned because of these metaphorical religious kinds of uh past tropes and stuff um and he's also saying, oh, but your anger is justified, which he never really extends to women. Their anger is not justified because they're represented by the dragon of chaos. So they're immediately bad, even though <laughs> they have to put up with vastly more bullshit on like a literal level, not a metaphorical level, but on like a literal reality based level. Um, but we're not about we're not allowed to be resentful. We're not allowed to be um like that. And my rebuttal to this quote is men are responsible for their feelings. Shouldn't they treat themselves as someone they are responsible for helping <laughs> and not blame women or, you know, the metaphorical chaos of the serpent? The solution for this like resentment is in the title of the chapter, but this is like a weird tangent he goes off on to again just take a dig at women. You know, just kind of for no reason. It doesn't really fit in with his general theme. Um, He kind of tightens it up in a little bit, but he's getting a real, he goes off the rails in this whole chapter really hard. Um, Another little, like, dig he likes, he's taking is this small quote on page 51. It could just mean that God is a patriarchal tyrant, as politic 
as politically motivated interpretations of the ancient story insist. Um, I don't know that... <laughs> I don't know that you have to have a politically motivated interpretation of the Bible to realize that God is a patriarchal tyrant. He literally is killing people throughout the entire book and supporting patriarchal structures in society. And sometimes just being arbitrarily violent. Um, <laughs> I, like, I again, and also, I just have to say, wait, like, he's not politically motivated here? The whole quote, I, the whole section I just quoted, I mean, th there's politics all involved in that. There's gender politics in this entire book. And he goes on to connect this quote to, to this evolutionary view of gender. Because, wait, because he's not politically motivated? <laughs> I just think it's so silly. Like, this is a critique of a critique as being politically motivated. And, but, but it's silly because we can directly draw a line from biblical views of sex to patriarchal views of sex and reproduction. Because it's almost as if patriarchal religions combined with the state create patriarchal power structures, or as he likes to call them, dominance hierarchies. Again, like, I don't, I don't get to imagine I live in a world where my existence is free from harassment by a political agenda. I, I guess this is a world he thinks he should be allowed to inhabit. I mean, I would like that too, but to say that to make that kind of subtle dig and then try to pretend like he's not ideological ideologically motivated and he doesn't have any kind of political motivations is crazy he came to prominence by having political beliefs by literally complaining about political legislation so everyone needs to shut the fuck up about him not having an agenda because he clearly does everyone does i have an agenda i'm just being honest about it and he goes on again he's really trying to hammer home the adam and eve thing i want to i did ha i have a little note here flowery language alert so in the middle of this whole tangent he says this perhaps heaven is something you must build and immortality something you must earn let's break down what the senate says um perhaps heaven is something you must build okay Yes, we create our own destinies. That's a flowery way of saying, yeah, we create our own destinies. And immortality is something you must earn. What he's referring to with immortality is the Judeo-Christian view of uh, the Christian view, specifically of believing on Jesus, that he was the ultimate sacrifice for your sins, and he died so that you could have eternal life. That's what he's meaning when he's talking about immortality. And so, but he leaves it vague enough to where it just kind of sounds flowery. And you could also say this is kind of a new agey thing to say, you know? Um, you could substitute like one word heaven, say, you know, the universe or anything else, and it would sound like something you'd read in a New Age book. Immortality is something you must earn. But he's not talking about it in this broad sense, because he keeps bringing up the Bible and the biblical view of immortality is something that you get through the specific act of believing on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
Okay. What does that have to do with self-help and self-responsibility? We're still not even at that point, right? Because he's still hammering home the biblical stuff. Um, And I, I really think he does himself a disservice by harping on this so much in the chapter because it distracts from the otherwise good points he's making. Um, to kind of move on, he starts talking about original sin and the concepts of uh, evil. For example, he says, only man will inflict suffering for the sake of suffering. That is the best definition of evil I've been able to formulate. I don't necessarily disagree with this. That is something that humans tend to do. Um, Why do humans do that? I think there are a lot of cultural and social reasons why they do that. I think some people are just born violent. I think it varies from person to person. I think that having a society based on violence probably has something to do with the amount of violence that happens in that society. Um, But he doesn't believe this. What he believes is in the concept of original sin. He goes on to say, and with this realization, we have well nigh full legitimization of the idea, very unpopular in modern intellectual circles, of original sin. And who would dare to say that there was no element of voluntary choice in our evolutionary individual and theological transformation? Our ancestors chose their sexual partners and they selected for consciousness and self-consciousness and moral knowledge. And who can deny the sense of existential guilt that pervades human experience? So, he does take another dig. When he says modern intellectual circles, who does he really mean by modern intellectual circles? Uh, He probably means other academics. um, You know, so why, why are these people opposed? Like other, other types of, People who would fall under the classical liberal umbrella, really. Um, So why is the concept of original sin so unpopular in these modern intellectual circles? Well, because the humanities shows us the wonderful potential of humanity. This is why we have humanities. This is why we study history. We can have the self-knowledge that we ourselves would never do such heinous acts of violence such as is mentioned in the Bible, like we can know that we won't be those terrible people. We know that like some of us aren't born evil and don't have that motivation to do evil. And even arguably, like a lot of things happen, you know, in accidental or tangential ways. Like what is the in- intent of evil? Like that's a whole other thing. Um, I kind of go on some, some of my notes in this uh you know, the reason people who critique the Bible, you know, the, the, this idea of the God of Bible is, is being seen as so terrible is because we made him in the image of our worst selves and impulses. And this is my own personal opinion, and this is what some non-religious people tend to believe. Like, the idea of God is a social construct, like, that, you know, we explain some of the worst impulses and worst things about ourselves that maybe come from, like, you know, being part animal, you know, where there isn't, like, I don't know, there wasn't, survival wasn't necessarily based in 
moral structures for a long time throughout evolutionary history. Um, instead of just maybe attributing it to that, we attribute it to this greater problem of original sin. Um, the problem, the reason I hate so much that he even brings up the idea of original sin in the context of a self self help thing is because the concept is at its core self sabotaging. It says that you can't get any better. You're born evil. There's nothing you can do, but depending on who you ask and what type of original because original sin is there's biblical original sin, but then there's also other more even somewhat secular views of original sin too. It's, it's a kind of broad concept. Uh, but if you believe that you can't get better and that you're wickedly depraved, then it's going to be uh, hard for you to think that you can fix yourself. And we have all of these wonderful self-help tools now that, you know, have been helpful in having people turn their life around and stuff like that. But, like, you have to get to a point where you believe that you can do it. So that he brings this up and that he tries to inject this specific type of religion into it is... I think really suspect and, and really uh, sabotaging to his own point. You know? Um, and like the, the implications of this worldview are seen when people wage wars and abuse their children for not conforming to patriarchal norms and beat their wives for refusing to submit. You know, the, this idea of the inherent evil and stupidity of women has long been a historical trope and the bible reinforces this on a cultural level if we're going back to the culture and cultural conditioning that we face at least in the united states and i would say much of canada too um it does go back to some of these biblical concepts and i've definitely been in circles where you know people were biblical literalists and really did truly believe that like eve had some type of inherent evil in her and pass that on to all women that there was a rebelliousness that naturally exists in women that needs to be forced down that needs that they need to be forced into submission the whole like idea well submission is a theme throughout all of the bible and it's submission itself is seen as a hierarchy so in if you are more of a Bible-believing Christian, there is this hierarchy of submission as the wife submits to the husband, the husband submits to, you know, God, or like, you know, children submit to them. Um, it's a huge, it's a very common concept, the idea of submission, and submission itself is a form of kind of self-sacrifice. And this is what annoys me about bringing this stuff up and trying to combine it with self-help is he's trying to have it both ways. He's trying to say, well, you can believe in original sin. You can believe in this concept that you're like horribly depraved and there's not, nothing that can save you beyond like divine intervention. But also you can do self-help, typical self-help, self-esteem stuff to... Uh, you know, kind of help yourself. And it's like, but if you have that foundation of guilt and shame, it becomes exponentially harder for you to really believe in these concepts. Okay, the next part, we're going to get to the root of 
Okay, now we, we're really, he's getting more into the self-help stuff, and he his reason for you taking responsibility for yourself and uh, you know treating yourself as if someone you're responsible for helping is because you have a spark of the divine in you. Okay, so here's more ideology going into ideology land. He talks about the concept of a spark of the divine. And he says, in Genesis 1, God creates the world with a divine, truthful word, generating habitable, paradisal order from pre-cosmogenic chaos. He then creates man and woman in his image, imbuing them with the capacity to do the same, to create order from chaos and continue his work. At each stage of creation, including that involving the formation of the first couple, God reflects upon what has come to be and pronounces it good. So, again, he brings up the concept of order from chaos. He really wants this to be true, and he connects it to the Bible. But again, I'm, I fail to see how it is supported, really. Um so he wants really badly for this to be true, but it's not really something I think that can be observed in these kinds of binary ways that he's trying to say it is. Like, again, he's very firmly harping on this order and chaos, masculine or feminine thing. But it's so, so subjective. Like, order is very subjective. You know, like, rearranging the cosmos to fit an oddly specific terrestrial view could be chaos itself. And he mentioned earlier, like, trying to force order can cause chaos itself. And how, how can we know what chaos is? Like, how are we going, why are we going by his definitions? Because he said so. What's to, say, what's to be said about the chaos that God brings to his people in this book that he thinks should be a foundational text of Western civilization? I mean, throughout the entire Bible, God is creating chaos. He's just like killing people off massively. Uh, he's, uh, I mean, the story of, uh, Abraham and Isaac, for example, what a horribly chaotic thing to request of someone prove, prove your devoutness by sacrificing your child. And then at the last minute, he's like, nope, never mind. Okay. Yeah. This is like a metaphorical story about self-sacrifice, but it's not even self-sacrifice. It's like, Hey, it's child sacrifice. Um, that's a really chaotic story, you know. Like, wh what is the metric for this? And guess what? There were no, there was no feminine chaotic energy involved in that whole thing because God is God the Father, right? God is always generally seen in these religious traditions as patriarchal. Um, even Jesus later on, if you want to get into the New Testament, uh, Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice for sin is supposed to be the order that corrects the chaos of original sin. But when he comes back, if, you've re if you're familiar with the resurrection story, he comes back in a fury. He comes back with fire and brimstone to destroy everything and create a new order, but he has to inflict chaos to do that. And in even certain more adversarial uh, biblical sects, you have the idea of Jesus bearing a sword. He says, I come to bear a sword. I'm going to come to divide. I'll, I'll divide the believers, believers from the non-believers. You know, I'll divide. I, you know, my doctrine is so divisive that it will split up families. 
Um, again, these are certain, these are more fundamentalist Protestant views of religion, but the, there are, that is a very common thing. I mean, the idea of like Jesus being a hippie and bringing peace on earth and stuff like that is one view. Also, that's kind of more of your universalist view. But if you really dig into the text of the Bible and you really read the quotes of Jesus and the part about the, uh, not even the resurrection, but the return after uh, the rapture and the tribulation and all of that, when Jesus, the second coming of Jesus is not, <laughs> it's not peaceful. It's, it's a very, uh, you know, the book of Revelation is very uh, chaotic and violent. And uh, by that point in what they believe, what some people believe will be a historical um, event, uh, a lot of people have died. A lot of people, like the basically the ones who are allowed to live are the Christians. Uh, and because they've lasted until the very end and their belief was so strong, but ultimately everyone else dies but the Christians is how the book ends. Uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't already read the Bible, it doesn't end well for you if you're not Christian. Just saying. Um, <laughs> and so when he's doing all of this, like when he's getting all to, into all of this religious stuff, it's I think it's really easy to zone out. Like I know I definitely did, but I was like actively taking notes. Like I think we were reading like an audiobook version of or listening to an audiobook version of this. I think it would be very easy to like zone out at these points because they're kind of vague and like he's going on and a lot of stuff, especially if you grew up under this type of culture, like you're going to be familiar with these stories. So it's kind of like, okay, yeah, I've kind of heard this before. So, but he gets sneaky preachy on you when you've stopped paying attention. And here's a quote about that. The original man and woman existing in unbroken unity with their creator did not appear conscious and certainly not self-conscious. Their eyes were not open, but in their perfection, they were also less, not more than their post fall counterparts. The fall meaning the fall from the Garden of Eden. Their goodness was something bestowed rather than deserved or earned. They exercised no choice. God knows that's easier. But maybe it's not better than, for example, goodness genuinely earned. Maybe even in some cosmic sense, assuming that consciousness itself is a phenomenon of cosmic significance, free choice matters. Who can speak with certainty about such things? I am willing to take these questions. I am unwilling to take these questions off the table, however, merely because they are difficult. Oh, wow, he's so brave. So here's a proposition. Perhaps it is not simply the emergence of self consciousness and the rise of our moral knowledge of death and the fall that besets us and makes us doubt our own worth. Perhaps it is instead our unwillingness, reflected in Adam's shamed hiding, to walk with God despite our fragility and propensity for evil. There's a, maybe a lot of debate about what Jordan Peterson's specific religious beliefs are, but this section very much shows th that I think some part of him really believes in the kind of um, the concepts of original sin and this uh, flawed fallen from grace stance that must be fought against in our pursuit to connect with the divine and to, to walk with God, as he says, and that 
our resistance to that is what causes a lot of our own anxieties and doubts and self-worth and stuff like that. I think it's the exact opposite. I think if you truly believe that you're born evil, that is what lends itself to beliefs in or to to self-loathing, to a lack of self-worth, to a lack of self-esteem. I think the data is very clear on people being raised in strictly religious dogmatic cults like they tend like it's very it is very difficult they tend to not have the best self-esteem they tend to be more susceptible to manipulation um i mean this can happen not just with religious things too but anything where you're really pushing the shame and guilt narrative over things that are outside of your control like being born being born how you are like having shame about who you are as a person um it kind of hits at some very fundamental things and like it depends on what you think how you think people are born it goes back to like these age-old conversations and debates about are we born bad are we born good are we born with a blank slate I think Jordan B. Peterson makes it very clear that he thinks we're born evil. Uh, we're born in iniquity and we have to fight against that by, you know, becoming closer to God or because we have a divine spark of God within us. And that's the reason why we should have self-esteem to honor that divine spark as opposed to just self just literal self existing as a physical you know thing um he goes on to say if we wish to take care of ourselves properly we would have to respect ourselves but we don't because we are not least in our own eyes fallen creatures if we lived in truth capital t if we spoke the truth then we could walk with god once again and respect ourselves and others and the world he so he doesn't necessarily define truth he he capitalizes it truth the the objective truth but he doesn't really define it and again this is a very vague statement too and he goes he uses the the royal and assumptive we indicting everyone who's reading this yeah we should respect ourselves we should take care of ourselves um but I don't know that we necessarily don't take care of ourselves properly because we view ourselves as fallen creatures who are fallen from this height of divinity. It could be so many other factors. Um, I mean, I think some religious people might have that view of themselves, and that speaks to the destructive belief system of that value of the, you know, that religion, basically. And he also refers, he's, he's bringing in a lot of like moral arguments here. He's talking about like, we need to live in the truth. Uh, he refers to people's thinking in the past as barbaric and more violent, which is not incorrect. Statistically, it was. And statistically, currently, there, there is a huge problem of violence still. But there were... Uh, you know, things were a bit more barbaric. Things were not as not as progressive as they are now in a lot of ways. But then he goes on to say, th- "There's an even bigger problem than that. There's an even bigger problem than violence in the world, and this is it. 
But now also another problem has arisen, which was perhaps less common in our harsher past. It's easy to believe that people are arrogant and egotistical and always looking out for themselves. The cynicism that makes that opinion a universal truism is widespread and fashionable. But such an orientation to the world is not at all characteristic of many people. Wait a second. So he says cynicism is an opinion that's a universal truism and it's widespread but it's not at all a characteristic of many people. Okay. Those people, the second group of people, he says, they have the opposite problem. They shoulder intolerable burdens of self-disgust, self-contempt, shame, and self-consciousness. And what he, what I think he's alluding here to, he doesn't, again, this, he's being intentionally vague here, but what I think he's specifically criticizing here, the subtext of what he's criticizing here, is what he sees as maybe someone who might have a sense of, like, white guilt or something. You know, like, a, a, a sense of this kind of, like, oh, I I hate myself for my, you know skin color or whatever and they have low self-esteem and for i guess other reasons that are non-religious um and that you know they're cynical of the the world around them and there's i don't see any proof for this i don't see where first of all uh that this is as serious a problem as he's saying as statistically i don't if we have a problem with self-esteem and being too self-conscious, I don't think that, that stems from secular changes, like a moving away from violence and barbarism and stuff like that. I think it's actually still more connected to these religious principles he's talking about. Like, there's just not proof of this premise at all that's observable or statistical. Like, I just don't see this alleged secular form of self-flagellation as much as I see other forms of violence normalized that stem specifically from religious traditions. And I think statistics back me up on this. Again, I, a lot of this is pretty easily verifiable. He's he's basically uh, – this is his way of giving a nod to his conservative aud audience here by attacking, you know uh, – the, their kind of like pet concerns and their kind of uh, base stereotypical views of uh, progressive people they disagree with. And he might try to, I, I think that's a criticism he could really easily weasel out of because he doesn't directly say this. You have to try to connect the dots with what he's saying in a broader sense and then what he leaks in in very specific senses. Um, so that's just my take on it. I could be totally wrong about that, but I think that's what he's talking about here. And I think that, uh, you know, people feeling the kind of shame and stuff that goes along with what religious, relig the idea of original sin, feeling ashamed because of how you were born and just being born bad often causes a ton of violence. Like, I don't think that the concepts of shame and self-loathing are a different problem from violence. I think they're often root causes of violence, which is why, like, other principles need to be believed and acted on in order to create less violent societies. He starts getting into 
a kind. So he's been talking a lot about religion the whole time, and specifically, this religion is very much based on principles of self-sacrifice. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for your sins. Um, And it's good to sacrifice your desires and, you know, whatever else to, you know, appear to or to have a relationship with a kind of higher power that's more divine and doesn't have all of the problems that humans do. But then he gets into some interestingly, I would say, almost virtue of selfishness type points that I don't even really disagree with that much. I mean, he uh, here here's a quote. Um, it is true that the idea of virtual self-sacrifice is deeply embedded in Western culture, at least insofar as the West has been influenced by Christianity which is based on the imitation of someone who performed the ultimate act of self-sacrifice. Yeah, I just said this. So he can see this. Like, he he does agree that, like, this self-sacrificial stuff being connected specifically to virtue and goodness comes from Christianity. And it embeds itself in Western culture. I, I really agree with this, especially the parenthetical part about the part of Western culture that's been deeply influenced by Christianity. Um, But Christianity didn't especially civilize anything by elevating the self-sacrifice. And I think this is where he kind of gets hung up with things. Like, he's able to recognize this, but he's still... He wants to have his cake and eat it, too. He wants to elevate this self-sacrificial religion while saying at the same time, but it's okay to be selfish. And he says he's specifically learned this from Jung, that being selfish in the sense of caring for self and defending self from bullies as much as you defend others is this virtuous thing. Like, we should not succumb to the tyranny of bullying. We shouldn't put up with people's shit. Excellent. Yeah, totally agree. But then he brings back the Christianity stuff as a way to compel this belief in regard to another topic, which is suicide. And so, again, he's it's not just enough that you live for yourself because you are a human being with consciousness and the ability to be virtuous. Like you have to live for something greater than yourself. That's undefinable. But uh, here's a quote. um, And this is from page 60, I believe. As God himself claims, so goes the story, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. According to this philosophy, you do not simply belong to yourself. You are not simply your own possession to torture and mistreat. This is partly because your being is inexorably tied to that of others, and your mistreatment of yourself can have catastrophic consequences for others. This is most clearly evident, perhaps, in the aftermath of suicide. So... I want to get kind of into, I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent with this. Uh, this probably deserves a content warning. We're going to start talking about suicide um, and violence and some of this. So, because the point he's making here, I don't completely agree with or disagree with. Um, I don't think that you should have to live for anyone else or ask anyone to live for you. Like, here's a binary I believe in. You either own your body or you don't. You can't live for other people. Um, And this is why suicide is so complex, because, yes, 
I, I think you absolutely have the right to your body. You have the right to live as long as you want to live and die as soon as you want to die. Um, and it's not pretty and it can affect other people. Of course it does. Like, of course we should take good care of ourselves and take good care of the people around us. Um, you know, but suicides themselves, they're not always caused by an, an, an inability to do self-care. You know, to say that, like, we don't have the right to end our lives is its own form of tyranny. I, I don't, you know, I, I very much uh, am an advocate of people being able, like, if they're, especially if they have a terminal disease or something like that, like, you have the right to death, too. So, and and every case is different. Um, you know, this isn't a very, this might be, like, a bit of an uncomfortable the thing to hear, uncomfortable thing to believe, but like suicide looks like harm in a lot of cases. But what if it's an escape from harm sometimes? Uh, you know, what if you were in a prisoner? Or what if you were in a prison, either literally or figuratively? I mean, it, it, like, I, I don't know. I It's not up to me to say whether or not people should live for other people. Like, it, I don't know. Like, it's, it is a horrible thing to have happen. I, you know, definitely have personal experience, you know, with people close to me committing suicide and it is horrible, but ultimately you do own your body. And yeah, like I, I just wanted to make a quick point about that. I might end up cutting this section out, but uh, I think that like he's really trying to do the whole have it your both ways. Like you need to not be you need to not be self-sacrificial, but you do need to also be self-sacrificial. Um, I don't know. Like, I just, I think he's still completely wrong about the chaos and order thing. I think those, both of those concepts are interchangeable according to his own metrics. Um, and yeah, he starts getting metaphorical again. I'm going to kind of put the suicide discussion down um for a second um he starts talking about you know why is it bad to do this like well obviously like it can hurt your family and have very real impacts and stuff but he tries to bring the metaphors back he goes but metaphorically speaking there's also this you have a spark of the divine in you which belongs not to you but to god we are after all according to genesis made in his image we have the semi-divine capacity for consciousness. Um, he's not like, he's not talking, he's saying metaphorically speaking, but this is something he actually believes. And this is, again, an example of him where he, where he could maybe have plausible deniability on the point that he's trying to make here because he uses the term metaphorically speaking, but then everything that follows after that is what he does actually believe. He believes we have a spark of divine in us. He, be he believes that that is the reason why we should not harm ourselves. Um, and that's where possibly consciousness comes from. And this is something that's said to make people feel better. And that's fine. Uh, like, this is a popular position. Like, that's what namaste means, basically, is like, I recognize the divine spirit within you. It's not just limited to 
Judeo-Christian belief systems. This is a very common belief that we have a spark of the divine in us. And, and like it's very popular, it works because we like magical thinking. We do like to think of ourselves as special. Um, I think it's wrong because I don't really think magic in this sense exists. Um, that's just my personal view on it. Like, I don't know, things are weird and there are a lot of things I can't explain. So I'm not going to say that like magic as a concept is interesting and <laughs> that's a whole other thing. Um, and I just don't think that like a God that wasn't made in our image that we didn't invent would ask us to live for them. Um, that is kind of like a very human request and it's often really desperate, but it's very human. You see things like that in, for example, like uh, romantic um, movies or things like that. It's full, total self-sacrifice to a concept or a person or things like that. Uh, very common thing. Um, is consciousness divine? I don't know. <laughs> but I think we can come up with better reasons to not kill ourselves than the idea that we have a spark of the divine in us. At least for me, like, it's never quite, that's never, I can see why that argument convinces people to live, and it gives their lives meaning. But I think there's a lot to take in from the world around us that has maybe its own, like, if you want to call it a spark of divinity, or some type of soothing beautiful properties. For example, I like being around in nature. I like looking at, you know, the the vastness and the amazingness of uh, the forest and the mountains and all of that. Like, I mean, the, there's a lot of things without us, like, you know, outside of us to take in and experience. And um, again, like, Using the shame to guilt people into living, you know, for something else or like living for things that, I don't know, are maybe intangible or hard to kind of see or understand than just saying, hey, maybe you have nothing to be ashamed for for surviving this hard world. Like maybe you shouldn't be ashamed for just existing. I just feel like that's a better self-help message. Uh, what do I know? I didn't write a self-help book. <laughs> yeah, like we're, this does go in contrast, like the, the divine spark thing is interesting, because in a way, it goes against the concept of original sin, in some ways. Um, and Peterson, like, recognizes that people can be altruistic and amazing and like, you know, bring all sorts of like, awesome, thriving to the world. Like he says this, here's a quote. There are many there are so many ways that things can fall apart or fail to work altogether, and it's always wounded people who are holding it together. They deserve some genuine and heartfelt admiration for that. It's an ongoing miracle of fortitude and perseverance. I think that's great. I completely agree. Yeah, life is really hard for people. Maybe we should kind of ease up on it. You know, maybe we shouldn't uh I don't know, force people who don't conform to gender norms to be extremely uncomfortable in our presence by intentionally misgendering them. You know, like, how can a guy who writes something like this that is obviously agreeable and true and is basically saying, you know, cut people some fucking slack, be such a hard ass about being an asshole to people who have it really hard already, who've had like a really 
who've had a lot of encounters with violence, who live on the margins of society and have to inhabit a very different existence from him. Like, he can obviously recognize that people have it harder than them and have, like, basic human sympathy, you know? So, yeah, again, harping on the idea of original sin and, like, continuing to go back to these shame-based religions is problematic. Like, it's, you know, or using it to force a kind of political agenda that is based somewhat in assholeism. Like, this is not a free speech issue. Again, going back to why he's originally famous. You know, like, I, I very much take a kind of opposite view when it comes to the whole original th- sin argument and the people are more inclined to do evil. Like, people do prevail against the odds. Like, we are the heroes of our own story because we are enough to live for just by existing. Like, it, frust- it frustrates me because I don't think he disagrees at all with this, considering the next part I'm about to quote you. Like, again, he's trotting out this theology based on shame and guilt. You know, that we're always inadequate in the eyes of God and can never be redeemed except through the narrow road of salvation. Like, he comes so close to getting it right, but then confuses his own good point that you're responsible for helping yourself with religious nonsense. Like, here's another quote. Again, I agree with this quote. We deserve some respect. You deserve some respect. You are important to other people as much as to yourself. You have some vital role to play in the unfolding destiny of the world. Now, that last part was very flowery, but those are good principles. Like, those are good statements. Um, yeah, you, you are important to other people based on what you're doing, not necessarily based on who, like, if you have a divine spark within you or not. And this is a good point about self-esteem. Like, you do deserve self-esteem. You deserve self-respect. You can see how other people respect you. They reflect it back to you. Um, Some of this chapter really echoes uh, Nathaniel Brandon's book, The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem, which I highly recommend everyone read if you want to get to the root of some of the points Peterson is making without a lot of the religious nonsense. Like, he strips away all that, and, like... A lot of this very much reads like six pillars stuff. Um, And he obfuscates a lot of these good points with this rehashing of the dominant religious tradition in order to appeal to more people. Like, I know what he's doing. I see what he's doing. You know, he wants to sell books. I get it. You know, he is putting forth a political agenda to do that. That's a good way to do it. And I suspect he knows this. I think he knows exactly the bullshit he's peddling. And he's trying to do this both sides stuff. And eventually, I think he's really going to back himself up against the wall. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, people agree with this on its face because these religious principles are so prominent in society. They're in so many. The tropes and uh, the gender norms, uh, like patriarchal norms, uh compulsory heterosexuality like all of these things come from these religious traditions and they're so saturated in the culture that they almost blend into the background it's kind of like when you see something sitting in the same place on your table every single day and eventually like you don't see that anymore like you say you're going to look for something that's or or like there's uh 
the idea of like being able to smell something you're able to smell something for a short amount of time before eventually that smell fades into the background and you don't really notice it as well um like this is a phenomenon with pet owners for example like i'm very sensitive to pet smells and can always tell but like a lot of people don't know how badly their house smells for example i did real estate photography so this is kind of like <laughs> the example i kind of have is like most people can't detect how badly their own places smell or something like that because they're just so saturated by it so often that the sensation is dulled and that's what you have with patriarchy and that's what you have with these systems of dominance and control like they are embedded in a lot of stuff we do and so it's sometimes invisible and it's sometimes or difficult to see and that's why a lot of what he's saying is so appealing is because it feels familiar to us and we like familiarity we tend to be you know uh disturbed by things that are not familiar to us so he takes a lot of stuff that's very comforting and familiar and adds it in with i do think a lot of legitimate self-help advice but it's not advice that you you know can't find in a million other places with a million you know fewer points of bullshit to it <laughs> you know like yeah, I, I agree that his audience should take care of himself, but he'd be better off attacking actual toxic patterns that exist instead of made up ones like people being too self-conscious because of, I guess, like liberal stuff or whatever. Like his audience should absolutely take care of themselves by freeing themselves from destructive norms like compulsory heterosexuality, the gender binary, the assimilation into an economic lie that tells us to get into more debt, buy more shit and sacrifice your life to a corporation just so you can never retire anyway. I don't know. There's like a million other fucking hills you could pick <laughs> to die on or fight against. And, and there are all these other systems in place within the existing dominance hierarchy that trap people and make them feel shitty you know it's not just religious stuff i i know i'm harping hard on the religious thing because he keeps bringing it up in this chapter but like there's so many other systems of control that hold people down like i'm all about self-respect and empowerment and we can get that without tearing other people down or continuing to force these very harmful norms on others um, and I got a, I love this next part. This is, uh, getting close to wrapping this up soon. I know this is a long episode, but, uh, he really jumps around and he really draws from a bunch of interesting, uh, <laughs> things in this chapter. Um, and I have to give him credit for this because he includes a, uh, Nietzsche quote, um, with some like hard preaching and this is towards the end of the chapters this is on pages 63 to 64 he goes uh god I, you're gonna love this german philosopher friedrich nietzsche so brilliantly noted he whose life has a why can bear almost any how and side note that is one of my more favorite quotes from nietzsche um so he goes on to say, you could help direct the world on its careening trajectory a bit more toward heaven and a bit more away from hell. Once having understood hell, researched it, so to speak, particularly your own individual hell, you could decide against going there or creating that. 
By the way, that's called cognitive behavioral therapy. If you're wondering what the actual therapies, <laughs> that's what you want to take to do that. So uh, he goes on to say, you could aim elsewhere. You could, in fact, devote your life to this. That would give you a meaning with a capital M. That would justify your miserable existence. That would atone for your sinful nature and replace your shame and self-consciousness with the natural pride and forthright confidence of someone who has learned once again to walk with God in the garden. So he starts with a Nietzsche quote and ends back in the Garden of Eden. This guy's really trying to have it both ways. Uh, again, he starts going into atoning for your sinful nature and, you know, fighting this gives you a meaning. Well, this is in contrast to existentialism, which essentially says meaning can come from within and without. Meaning is what we want it to be and what we create. We are our own gods and we are the gods of our own existence and should not live solely for others. That he takes it, I mean, I've, I've talked about existentialism before on the podcast. I very much think that it has some very good principles for self help, that you create your own meaning. Um, that meaning is not this necessarily objective thing for everyone. Maybe it does give your life meaning to live for the divine spark and honor the divine spark within you and other people. That's perfectly fine. Again, whatever gets people through the day. Um, but you can create meaning in your other ways. Like I, I think what I disagree with most in this chapter is the conflation of the divine with meaning, with this greater purpose. He injects this dogma in between valid self-help advice while not so subtly raging against dogma itself <laughs> or what he perceives as dogma. And yeah, I'm not saying these concepts can't coexist. What I'm saying is you don't need the guilt and shame of letting down the God within you in order to thrive. What is meaning? I don't know. I'm still trying to find that out. But I think I've been able to glimpse enough beauty in the natural world and the unnatural world to know that we can make it ourselves or at least be appreciative of the happy accident we are. I don't know how we got here. I don't know what our purpose is, but it can be pretty cool sometimes, you know, like there are lots of reasons to live, lots of reasons to, you know, treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping. And if religion brings you happiness, more power to you. That's great. But I think we have to examine these principles of dogma. And by examining them, it will lead to a freer existence for more people. And, I mean, that seems like that's the goal of the chapter is to, you know, bring people's self-esteem up and have them be freer. So, again, I don't think you need religion to do that. Um, and I think he... He's He is very ideological. He definitely has a political agenda. And I came across a really interesting article that I'm going to link to in the show notes of what his political agenda actually is, which I've been saying this from the beginning since I found this guy. Uh, I was like, okay, this is your kind of run-of-the-mill conservative. You know, he very much uh, is conservative in his religious and political beliefs, and conservatives tend to be opposed to these kinds of 
faster progressive changes that we're seeing. Like they tend to want to maintain order. Does this sound familiar? Is it starting to sound familiar at all? I hope so. <laughs> um, so I highly recommend I I could go into that all day. I think anyone listening to this podcast already probably agrees with me. If they don't, and they're really, they really want to argue with me about the, oh no, he's not a conservative, he's a classical liberal. Um, I would direct them to this excellent article by Meg Arnold and Kelly Wright called Jordan Peterson is a conservative, not a classical liberal. And they do a great analysis in this. You should definitely read it. Another, a person I've mentioned before on the podcast, ContraPoints, does a tremendous job of breaking down what the West is. Because even in this chapter, you see Jordan Peterson alluding to the idea of Western civilization and Western values, and those are very much based and influenced by Christian dogma. Um, and they link to a lot of things, so I highly recommend it. I do want to quote it really quick. I'm going to quote one of my favorite sections of it. Just to give you a preview of the article, please go read the whole thing because it's excellent. Here's, here's uh, what Kelly and Meg wrote. Peterson wants to preserve incumbent hierarchies qua their incumbency. In other words, Peterson is not an adversary of established norms, mores, or institutions, but rather an effective defender of them. He appeals to myths and legends about Jungian archetypes to obscure his defense of what are already prominent ideas. And this is perfect. This is what I've been saying since the beginning of this series is he's not dangerous at all. He's defending the status quo and he's saying it's good because it exists. And that's a problem if you want to escape from what you perceive chaos to be. If you perceive chaos to be this bad destructive force in your life and you want to remedy it, you want to have an antidote to it, maybe you should examine the existing structures and how those are negatively impacting your life, how those are creating chaos within you. What do things like toxic masculinity do to men? You know, all of these toxic norms can be questioned and you can, you know, build your self-esteem in a lot of other ways too. I mean, therapy is a great way to do this, like cognitive behavioral therapy, especially like, uh, and all that. So this episode, I, I feel like I have summed it up enough. God, I could just go on and on about this, but we have so many more chapters to do. So I'm going to wrap it up with, finally, the Queer Eye episode you could watch instead and in listening, instead of reading this book or at least listening to this now hour and a half or so long podcast. <laughs> Um, this is a great episode. This is actually one of my favorite episodes of Queer Eye. Um, again, such a wholesome show and it brings, it really brings in the positivity of the points that Jordan Peterson, I think, is trying to make in this chapter. Um, but kind of shoots himself in the foot doing. Um, so the episode you want to watch is season one, episode five, and it's about this guy named Bobby Camp. He's married and has six children, and he works three jobs to support them and has, like, no time for himself. And he was nominated by his wife uh, because, yeah, he was a guy who didn't – he's not taking any time for himself. He's not keeping up with his physical appearance. And he also suffers from a lot of low self-esteem. He doesn't exhibit 
pride. He feels a lot of guilt because he failed to organize their wedding initially. Like they didn't even get photos taken. And it was kind of his responsibility to organize his wedding. And he dropped the ball on it. And he's had guilt and, you know, low self-esteem for many years because of this. Um, He exhibits like some hoarding tendencies too. The house is like kind of a mess and like it's causing a lot of stress on the family. And the the guys come in and they teach him to have pride in his appearance and his role as a father and to take time for himself. Um, you know, the, the idea of self-sacrifice is very big in this episode. He's constantly self-sacrificing for his family to the point where he's just totally exhausted. Um, and the guy is Christian and they're teaching him a bunch of the values. None of it really conflicts with his brand of Christianity, which is more seemingly more kind of like universalist. There is like a part where uh, Bobby, the one who the guy who does interior design for the Queer Eye group um, and Bobby, the subject of the show, have this kind of like heart to heart where uh, they kind of softly touch on a universalist idea of God, the God is love thing, but it's not drilled in super hard. And it's made to show that like, basically encourage the acceptance of gay people and accepting people despite their differences. So even when they do have religion in an episode, it's generally always in a very positive way and in a more kind of a less, uh, conservative view of the bible like a less literalist view of the bible and a less harping on the idea of original sin and more on like a new testament kind of view of the bible as like jesus loves everyone kind of thing um so that's kind of interesting but they're they're mostly giving him really practical advice you know uh tan the person who's responsible for the wardrobe he makes the point that bobby needs to make more of an effort to show respect to his wife uh, because she makes an effort in her physical appearance. And I'm really sympathetic to this guy. Like, he's really salt of the earth. This episode is so great. Like, he's really a guy who's, he's been beaten down by a lot of things, but he's really trying his best. And, you know, by the end of the episode, he's a lot more confident. Um, and he makes up for poorly organizing uh, his marriage ceremony. Self-care is really highly emphasized in this episode, um, as are the principles of healthy self-esteem, mutual respect, and self-responsibility. So this episode so succinctly sums up Peterson's chapter without injecting a bunch of harmful ideological points like original sin. Um, again, like it's so great. Um, and Bobby Camp learns to treat himself as someone he's responsible for helping and overcomes his guilt. And they have a little tip at the end, which is great. Uh, the tip is this breathing technique you, you can use to help you, yourself calm down when you're stressed and overwhelmed. And that's just like some good, solid, evidence-based self-care. So I'll watch that episode instead. <laughs> um, for the next chapter, I will be uh, covering chapter three of the book make friends with people who want the best for you ah geez that sounds real wholesome and i can't wait to get into that uh, i hope everyone enjoyed this episode again like i don't completely disagree with the guy he's making some good points but he's 
adding in so much other nonsense that I think it totally detracts from the otherwise good points he's making. So if you like what I'm doing, you can uh, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud or on Patreon. Uh, patrons get early releases of the episodes and other types of like bonus footage and stuff like that. There's different tiers based on uh, how much you want to engage and things like that. And I'll be doing like more live stream sessions and stuff too. Uh, give me some comments and feedbacks if I missed anything. If there's anything else I, you know, I should be covering in regards to this topic, I'm always open to it. And uh, I will be tackling chapter three next time. 